I think the keeping our eye on the prize of preventing Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon has to stay front and center and drive the decisions. It is the week of February 22nd, and welcome to episode 67 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Lauren Dealey Mahler, NSI Visiting Fellow, President of Dealey Mahler Strategies, and former Director of Legislative Affairs at the National Security Council. Mike Gottlieb, NSI Visiting Fellow and former Associate Counsel and Special Assistant to the President. Jamil Jaffer, NSI Founder and Executive Director, and former Chief Counsel and Senior Advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow and the former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The Biden administration has not been coy about its desire to get the United States back in the Iran Nuclear Agreement, or the JCPOA, that's the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, originally signed back in 2015. The president and his senior aides have said that if Iran, which now has 10 times the amount of refined uranium allowed under the deal, returns to compliance with the agreement, the U.S. will drop all of its nuclear-related sanctions, many of which were reimposed by the Trump administration in the past couple of years. The deal already has restrictions that have expired. The U.N. arms embargo on Iran is over despite the Trump administration's attempt to snap it back last year. In three years, Iran can begin using advanced centrifuges. All kinds of restrictions in the deal on Iran's nuclear activities begin expiring even sooner than that. Michael, why is the Biden administration so hot to get back into the JCPOA when the deal itself becomes less valuable to us by the day? Why not go for a new deal with longer deadlines? So I think I want to fight the hypo a little bit in the sense that it's not clear that the Biden administration wants to get back in the JCPOA for the point of getting back in the JCPOA. I think the administration wants to get back in the JCPOA uh, in part because of its familiarity, but also in part because they want to get back into a deal that has a framework that they can then negotiate for further uh, modifications to the deal going forward. And there's been a lot of reporting about differences and ongoing internal debate within the administration between some uh, in the administration that favor just getting right back into the JCPOA and others that want to negotiate an interim deal and try to negotiate for expanding it. It's not entirely clear who's sort of won that debate internally in the administration yet. Time will tell. Um, obviously, the message coming out of the administration is they want some kind of an agreement, some, some type of a framework that serves as a confidence building measure on both sides. And so why do they want that? They want that because um, we're in a really, really tough situation right now. The maximum pressure campaign, uh, whatever one may think of it, has resulted in a situation where Iran is now enriching uranium up to 20% purity. Um, hardliners in Iran are talking about upping that into the 60% range. They've got 12 times the amount of enriched uranium permitted by the accord, maybe more than that, installed advanced centrifuges. Um, and the sort of dust up in Iran over the um, the law passed in parliament that requires the government to suspend implementation of the additional protocol has raised a lot of questions about uh, whether the moderates will have any weight at all going forward. And so I think there is a, a huge amount of concern uh, that, um, and, and essentially they've been messaging over the last couple of days that um, the United States has to take the first move. So I think the reason that they want to get back um, into the JCPOA or something that looks like it is because it offers a framework for uh, establishing an agreement going forward. All right, let me push back a little bit, Michael, uh, on this on this whole idea of getting back into the deal and then negotiating another one that's tougher. That seems totally unrealistic to me. 
how do you get anyone off the dime after you go back into the old deal to get them to agree to a new deal? Why not just jump straight to the new deal? They may move. They may jump straight to the new for, to a new deal. I mean, it's I think it's a little bit unclear uh, how that will play out in negotiations. But you've got to start somewhere. Right now, Iran is basically saying we're not going to do anything unless the United States makes the first move. And I think uh, many of the people on this podcast are assuming that that just means where we'll wind up is a commitment and an agreement to get back into the JCPOA exactly as it existed. It's not clear that's what's going to happen. But if that is what happens, uh, certainly there's never before in history been an arms control agreement that's followed on a previous one. This would be the first time that it ever happened, right? Fair. Uh, Jamil, did the Trump administration's reimposition of sanctions on Iran, the so-called maximum pressure policy Michael just referenced, have any benefits to the United States? Did Iran change its behavior for the better because of it? Well, certainly Iran has been chastened. Their economy is in the tank. Uh, their oil exports are down to a fraction, barely a tenth of what they were uh, during the Obama administration. Um, I think it's notable that Iran only went to 12x uh, the uranium uh, in around November. You know what happened in November? Joe Biden won the election. Iran pulled out of the additional protocol when? January, after Joe Biden took office, right? Iran threatened to bar IAEA inspectors. When? After Joe Biden came into office and, and created this ambiguous policy of maybe we will get back into JCPOA. Maybe we'll create some ephemeral fake new deal. Maybe we'll do, maybe who knows what we'll do, right? What we know for sure is We'll get into some deal with Iran that looks something like the JCPOA, which was widely panned by Democrats and Republicans alike in the prior administration, had so little political support that when the president walked away from it, the only people that were upset were A, the Iranians, and B, whiners in Washington, D.C. The American public widely cheered uh, the departure from the Iran deal, and, and members of Congress widely supported it. So- you know, this idea that somehow it's the Trump administration that's at fault for Iran's bad behavior is completely false. Iran is at fault for its bad behavior. And the Biden administration, by suggesting it might even consider going back to the JCPOA, is to blame for the behavior that Iran has engaged in just in the last few weeks. And by the way, worth noting, Iran, after, after having attacked an American base uh, a, few, a year or a year or two back, Donald Trump having pushed back aggressively, and let's be clear, I'm not a fan of the, of the former president, um, and pushed back aggressively, having killed Qasem Soleimani, the head of the IRGC Quds Force, there was a significant downturn in Iranian attacks. All of a sudden now, here they are back again, attacking an American base in Erbil. And what does the Biden administration do? Re, re, re-permits uh, Iranian diplomats into the U.S. to go to the U.N. and, and, and makes a public statement about the U.N. Uh, sanctions on Iran for violating the JCPOA. I mean, literally the opposite of what we should be doing. When, we're, when American contractors are being killed by Iranian missiles. Lauren, I'm going to disagree with Michael, Michael's earlier comment. I think the administration's very eager to get back into the old deal. Uh, they've, they've been telegraphing this uh, since even before the election, during the campaign. Pretty clear this is where they're going, my view. Do you think they're going to wait? Assuming that's correct, do you think the administration will wait until Iran is in full compliance with the deal before getting back in? Or are they going to try and fudge this at the end? Are you are you concerned about that at all? I would say you just made the point there, like, let's assume that that's true, first of all. And I think we need to step back and not necessarily assume that that's true. Um, I think that what we can see here now is that, as Jamil even pointed out, Iran is now 12 times the limit on their enriched uranium um, 
they, whenever it was that they hit that point, November, whatever the, the dates and the timelines are, the whole point of the original Iran deal was to prevent this from happening. And it's happened. So clearly something's not working. And did they have 12 times the limit prior to Trump pulling out? No. And now they do. So I think that what the Biden administration sees and wants to prevent from happening is Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. I think that's what everybody agrees on across the board. And there are lots of things that can go with that. We've heard lots of talk about whether or not, as Mike was saying, whether or not there's agreement to go back, aim for the original Iran deal, whether or not there's agreement to aim for something that looks like a compliance plus uh, type of agreement where there are other factors now being brought into a new extended agreement. Um, I think a lot of that is still a little bit up in the air, but I think that everyone does agree on the supreme goal here being rather than 100% of the world lining up in the exact ways and acting and doing the things that we want them to do all the time, we need to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. And I think at the end of the day, working towards that goal is the objective that we're going to see. Michael, how concerned are you about America's friends and allies who are looking for a harder line on Iran? I'm thinking about Israel and Saudi Arabia, how they're going to react to whatever methodology the, the administration uses to get back into some sort of agreement with Iran. How, how concerned are we about the reaction of those folks and how will we kind of mollify their concerns? Yeah, I mean, look, you're always concerned about your allies' views on critical issues like this one. At the same time, this is not coming as a surprise to anyone, right? This was a central national security issue that President Biden campaigned on. His national security advisor was intimately involved in the details uh, of this agreement the first time around. He is known to and familiar to, along with the Secretary of State, known to and familiar to those allies. So I, I just don't think it comes as a surprise. Are they going to be happy about it? Of course not. Are they going to complain about it? Yes. Are, the, are there going to be some types of unintended consequences and repercussions from that? Absolutely. But those allies, like any others, don't dictate uh, our foreign policy to us, and uh, they're perfectly entitled to make their views known, and it's the job of the State Department and our national security advisor and our government as a whole to manage that. Jamil, you once saved Christmas in Bethlehem. With that as your credential, sir, uh, how's Bibi Netanyahu going to react to this? I, my sense is uh, President Biden's not nearly as frosty in his relationship with uh, Netanyahu that oh, as as Obama was. They had they were uh, almost not talking at all. Uh, Biden's not a huge fan of Netanyahu, but he's willing to talk to him. Where does this whole deal leave Israel? Well, look, I think uh, I think Bibi is not going to be happy about um, as Mike Crossley pointed out about about America getting back into the Iran deal. Uh, but I think Mike is exactly right. Uh, it's not like Joe Biden did not make clear where he was on the Iran deal um, and what his administration's policy would be if they came into office. Uh, they were elected. Uh, it is America's right uh, to decide what its foreign policy is. Wrong-headed, uh, though it may be um, in this case. Um, uh, we're, we're not dictated to by our, by our allies or our friends. Uh, but we have to recognize they're not going to like it. And, um, you know, everyone will move on. Bibi's gotten a lot of a lot of wins in the last four years under the administration of Donald Trump. I think he uh, it's going to be hard for him to complain um, about uh, about unfair treatment. Um, and I do think the Biden administration will be more uh, uh, cognizant of uh, of our allies uh, interests in the Middle East, whether those allies are the Saudis or the um, or the Israelis. Um, and so. Look, I think I think we're it's a different administration than the prior administration, notwithstanding some of the similar looking aspects of their foreign policy. I do worry 
um, that uh, that their that their current whiff on on the attack in Irbil um, is a mistake. Uh, this idea that they're not going to get pushed into a uh, a uh, an escalation. I mean, that's exactly that's the same mentality that everyone had when Donald Trump uh, had Qasem Soleimani uh, killed, um, and and rightly so. And there was no conflagration in the Middle East. We didn't end up in World War III with Iran, which everyone wrung their hands about um, a year ago. Uh, a year ago, January. And so um, I do worry that the Biden administration is, is tempted in that direction. I think they have uh, the right kind of people who have the right kind of philosophy and, and they, they, they shouldn't go that direction, but I worry it's easy. It's easy to go that way. It's easy to head in that direction. Um, and, and, and a few early signs are not particularly compelling. And so I'm hoping the, the administration will come back around, uh, have a more robust foreign policy, have a foreign policy more like that, frankly, of, of, of Bill Clinton, um, and Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State than Barack Obama as president, even though Clinton served in his presidency. So even Trump ignored a bunch of provocations from Iran. Uh, he was about to launch missiles to respond to one provocation and pulled it back at the last second. The Iranians shot down a, a Saudi drone. Actually, they shot down one of our drones and we decided not to do anything about it. But, you know, eventually... Yeah. Trump did respond. He responded rather dramatically. But shouldn't we shouldn't we give the Biden administration a little latitude here? Sure. But look at how that turned out. You would think they would learn the lesson from Donald Trump's failures. He ignored Iran and their provocations against the Saudis, against us, against our drone, against Americans repeatedly over and over again. I mean, history is replete with American presidents, including uh, the president that I worked for, George W. Bush, ignoring Iranian provocation. Um, and, and, and the Iran's getting more and more and more aggressive each time. And so... Uh, we should all learn a lesson from that and realize that when, you know, when the when the when the when the schoolyard bully pushes you around, the right answer is not go whine and tell the teacher because that's not going to work. You got to punch him in the face in front of all the other kids. And that works. It worked with Iran and it would work again. And I worry the Biden administration has not learned that lesson. And in fact, is tempted to go the other way. Um, and our history with Iran is it demonstrates that they'll just get more and more aggressive. So Lauren, China seems to be back to business as usual with Iran. They're buying Iranian oil uh, kind of back at uh, previous levels. Seems to me like we're, um, we're, we're maybe kind of losing the force for the trees here. Shouldn't we be trying to make the, the relationship between China and Iran more complicated, not less complicated? I'm not sure, given all the other priorities and other considerations going on with relation to Iran and, and the whole region, that I don't think at the top of the priority list is whether or not uh, China has a new friend. Always a consideration, always something that gets factored into what we do, but I don't think that needs to be the deciding factor of, you know, if the relationship gets more complicated, if it, you know, if there's increased, you know, economic cooperation, whatever, I think that plays in as a as a second and third order effect um, on what we do. I think the keeping our eye on the prize of preventing Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon has to stay front and center and drive the decisions. Um, I think it's also interesting and and worth noting. You know, we just came through a, a very contentious. I'm making air quotes around the word contentious election here in the United States. And we see election year politics playing out in both Israel and Iran uh, right now as well. So I think the extra complicating factors that we know that can bring um, are, are going to make this play out in even more complex ways uh, in the coming months. 
it's a little unfair to compare elections in Israel to elections in Iran, isn't it? I mean, the uh, the candidates in Iran are handpicked by the supreme leader, the Ayatollah. It's not it's not really a democracy, is it? I think perhaps I I, I shall rephrase. Looking at it from my perspective of the of the talk and the taking the line and the public stance and the communication aspect that goes with all of that, you know. Who can who can outright who can outleft who? Um, I think that's going to play an interesting role as we uh, as we see this move ahead. So, Jamil, I remember uh, back in the day a couple of Democrats in the Senate. Who were they? Oh yeah, Chuck Schumer and Bob Menendez being opposed to the Iran nuclear deal. I don't know what happened to those guys. I don't know where they went. I don't know if they're in positions of authority anymore. How do you think uh, Congress is going to react to? Uh, the U.S. and Iran getting back into a nuclear deal if that happens in the next few months? Well, look, I think uh, I think like the uh, prior administration, I think they're going to put significant pressure on Democrats in Congress to toe the line and stick with the president on a key foreign policy priority. It's not nearly as big a foreign policy priority for this president as it was Barack Obama. Barack Obama had zero foreign policy wins uh, for eight years um, and desperately needed one right at the end and crammed the Iran nuclear deal through to get one win uh, in eight years. Uh, Joe Biden's just starting out his presidency. He doesn't need this thing, although it has, he has made it an important uh, priority. And I think there'll be a lot of pressure on Democrats. At the same time, it's worth noting that you know majorities in both houses of Congress uh, firmly oppose the Iran nuclear deal. And I expect you'll see the same again, um, because uh, at least if they re-enter the, the JCPOA, because it was a terrible deal. I mean, it had it had provisions in it that involved Iran essentially, uh, you know, investigating itself uh, at, at sites of prior military dimension. Um, it's sort of like it's sort of like a Russian athlete te- some drug testing themselves and sending into some laboratory. I mean, it's ridiculous. The Russians would love that, um, and the Iranians love that part of the deal. Uh, they also got a free pass on prior uh, on, on prior restrictions on ballistic missiles. They had the ability to conduct advanced advanced centrifuge research. I mean, basically, they were handed a bunch of cash, limited limited uh, restrictions on their ability to immediately enrich uranium, and then a deal that was short so they could just go sprint to the weapon when the time came, or frankly, drop out of the deal and sprint to the weapon on a day's notice. So. You know, I mean, arguably one of the worst, worst uh, deals made in American history. Um, and, uh, and you know, no surprise that it was opposed by bipartisan majorities in both houses. Um, hopefully the Biden administration will enter into a better deal, not the old one. Um, and, uh, and they'll garner support from, uh, uh, from, from a broader range of Democrats than, than the Obama administration did last time, even with significant pressure on their, on their party ally. Michael. Listeners may not know this, but on this podcast, Jamil Jaffer personally was responsible for the killing of Osama bin Laden in the closing days of the Bush administration. That that did not happen on Barack Obama's watch. All right. I will grant you that. Big win. Huge win. I, and the president made a very tough choice, right? I didn't think about it as a foreign policy. Well, he, let's, Jamil, don't, don't forget, he rejected Joe Biden's advice not to do it. Yeah, and and a number of other people's, by the way. Look, the the president did put himself out there, uh, and a, and a huge victory for our country. Uh, I will take the I'll take the shot on that one. But let's be real; he didn't have any foreign policy wins that were that were um, that were significant. Uh, the Paris climate deal was a was a was 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 you know not loved, um, and uh, and so I think the best he can hope for was the Iran nuclear deal towards the end, and you know. But I'll I'll give you Bin Laden. I think not loved in your corner of the world doesn't mean not loved anywhere. We'll, oh no, I, I, I think we'll it was, give I think... you a little footnote for Jamil speaks for Jamil, but then we'll call it off there. Yeah, Paris climate change deal asterisk. Fine. New start, Trini. Fair. All right, all right. Asterisk. Let's talk. <laughs> let's shift to our second topic: Facebook in Australia. 
So the Australians uh, produced a law that would compel internet companies like Facebook to make specific payments to news organizations if a story from one of those news organizations was posted on their website. Uh, Facebook responded by refusing to allow any posts from Australian news organizations on its site, evidently to dramatic effect down under. It appears that this, uh, at least the the immediate issue has been resolved and uh, Facebook is going to restore the ability of people to post Australian news stories. There's going to be uh, possible changes to this law. They're negotiating a, um, uh, a decent outcome here. But it kind of raises the question, Lauren, uh, about the role of these internet companies, these ginormous uh, but new uh, corporate behemoths like Facebook. Uh, and their role in uh, in the public square. So what's what's your take? Is Facebook uh, the bad guy here in Australia? Look, I think that it's kind of interesting when you see what how things have actually played out um, down there. You have everyone like to pretend that, you know, on a good day, Facebook is your aunt sharing pictures of her cat and your high school friends sharing pictures of their kids and everything's just fine and fuzzy. And we all know in the back of our minds, the, the power that Facebook actually wields and that they sit on. And when we see them do something like shut off all news stories on Facebook in Australia, suddenly they act on that and everybody acts shocked and surprised that there's a new carrying on with our themes, a new bully on the playground. Um, But I think that while that may have been sort of a a shot across the bow and and kind of forcing the hand um, of some renegotiations on the proposed law down in Australia, I I think they're not the only ones wielding a lot of power behind the scenes that people like to pretend isn't happening. I mean, a lot of this, a lot of the, the legislation that's being driven down there um, is coming, you know, coming from from News Corp's side of the world. And I think there's a whole lot of power people don't like to acknowledge there until it's wielded in a more genteel behind the scenes lobbying type of a way. So I think there's a lot of very large, very powerful entities that nobody really likes to uh, to acknowledge as much who are driving this behind the scenes. So I, I don't think there's just one bad guy here. I think there's there's a bunch of folks fighting pretty hard for, you know, money at the end of the day. Jamil, is is that so bad? Isn't that isn't this kind of what should happen? And if Facebook decides to take down all the news, people could, you know, download Twitter, look at news on Twitter. That's free. They could turn on the TV. They could go buy a newspaper at the newsstand, assuming there's still any newsstands around. I mean, there's other ways to get news. Do we do we really care about this? Well, look, I mean, I think that uh, sort of this is the free market. Do you believe that um, that governments should manipulate the free market and uh, decide how uh, consumers uh, get their news? Or should do they allow the free market to fight itself out and and um, and uh, and play and play it out? And in this case, uh, the Australian government decided to put a thumb down scale. It's their right to do so. Um, It's not advisable, I don't think, but it's their their right to do so. Um, And Facebook has the right to sort of reject that and act accordingly as a private company does. And and so this was a perfectly um, uh, a cognizable outcome. Uh, there's, there should be no surprises to anybody that this is how it played out. And frankly, the fact that Facebook uh, won this round should be no surprise to anyone else either. I do think it is indicative of, of, of the United States and what we should be thinking about. Um, as we watch um, our allies overseas uh, try to manipulate the market, 
Uh, we should be very careful as we think about, as, as the House and the Senate start to think about antitrust hearings, uh, targeting some of these very companies, Facebook, Google, uh, Amazon, and the like, um, we should recognize that these are the companies most responsible for economic success in the last decade. Uh, they are the engines of our modern economy. Um, and uh, we also ought to note that there's not really a lot of evidence of antitrust behavior. There may be a couple of things here and there uh, where you might want to make some corrections. But the idea that there's a massive antitrust problem is just not accurate. There is a des desire by uh, some in Congress on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans alike, uh, to go after Facebook, Google, and Amazon, but not not for antitrust violations. They use the antitrust laws, but the real beef is, oh, you're not featuring my kind of content, or uh, you let too many Russians on your platform, or whatever the beef is, right? Um, antitrust laws are not designed for that. And so I think that the experience in Australia uh, should be assigned to members of Congress uh, about, about making mistakes when it comes to legislating about technology. Um, and it also ought to be assigned for members of Congress that these are American companies. We want to protect them and grow them. Um, and, and going after them and criticizing them is one thing, but going after them and trying to take them down uh, when they're our most successful innovative companies is, is a huge mistake, not just for economic security, but for our national security writ large. So, Michael, the Australians seem to want to dive right into regulating these big companies and setting price points for for posts and things like that. Maybe that's not exactly what's going to happen in the U.S., but there is this these moves on the right and the left to more heavily regulate our companies. Is there any lessons we should be drawing? I know it's a little early, but are there any lessons we should be drawing from what happened in Australia about the wisdom of that kind of regulation? Yeah, so, I mean, I don't... I don't think it gets the approach quite right to say that they're trying to set, you know, prices for individual posts. I mean, they are trying, what the Australian competition regulator is trying to do is address what they view as a sort of mismatch in the market dynamics between the content providers and the platforms. And the, the, the argument they make, and I don't find it personally, I don't find it particularly persuasive, but the argument they make is that Facebook and Google have essentially distorted the income streams for the news platforms such that one third of all money that's being spent on any form of online advertising or content in Australia is going to Facebook and Google. And meanwhile, after when Facebook shut down its news, the University of Canberra put out a study that said 39% of Australians get their news from Facebook. So this is, this is a pretty big deal uh, for, for information um, and the delivery of it in Australia. But I think I, I do agree with Jamil that thinking of the antitrust laws as this sort of one-stop fix for the problems that we see with Facebook really is a, a hammer nail problem. And I, it's not, there are a bunch of different problems that people are trying to address. And I think that there is a sort of, there's a disinformation problem and it's a really serious problem and antitrust laws have nothing to do with it. So agree with Jamil on that. There is, a, there is a market dominance problem that is an antitrust problem. And that really is a, a question for the Justice Department, the FTC to figure out. And it's not something that should be rushed. And it's something that they need to take, you know, that, you know obviously that the Trump administration was speeding towards a resolution uh, with respect to certain of those issues towards the end. But um, look, I think what the Australia experience shows, Facebook has a ton of power. Uh, when, and if a regulator... Uh, whether it is a um, an antitrust regulator or a parliament or a legislature overshoots, Facebook has some pretty powerful options available to it uh, to essentially turn off content and to turn off services. And so uh, there is a pretty important exercise in calibration that has to be done if you want to regulate these entities effectively. All right, let's talk about uh, about the market a little bit. It seems to me that no one under the age of 38 
uses Facebook at all. I base this on a survey of people in my family under the age of 38. They, uh, they can't even bother to download the app. They wouldn't even consider using it. It's something their grandparents use. It's, it's almost embarrassing. So does any of this even really matter? I mean, the, the kids today are onto social media platforms that I haven't even heard of. I mean, they're way beyond Snapchat and TikTok and all that onto totally new things. Do we really care about this? Well, unless you should probably get on Clubhouse. <laughs> I, look, I, I think we care a lot because, I mean, for, if for no other reason, because Facebook owns a lot of those companies that you just talked about, right? I mean, Facebook either owns now or is acquiring or will acquire over time many of the platforms that uh, young people are using. And, um, and, and, and Facebook, um, whether it reaches only, you know, the 40 and over set today or not, um, has a huge, I mean, just an, an unprecedented amount of reach as far as the dissemination of information into people's homes go. I mean, it's, un, it's, it's unprecedented in, in, in human history, the reach that they have across the globe in terms of the dissemination of information. So, um, you know, whether it's only old people or only middle-aged people, it's still enough eyes around the world that it is something that um, governments, regulators and consumers need to really think carefully and thoughtfully about and design the regulatory regimes that interface with them. I think there's a piece to this that matters also on the Facebook part. That's the sort of back end of what goes on through that platform, that it's not just the dissemination of information among, you know, the 38 plus crowd um, with our, our cat photos and first day of school pictures, but there is an unseemly amount of data that moves back end through Facebook. When you get into questions, you know, you, you can't, you can't be in the digital marketing space without going through Facebook. I, you know, had clients who were advised to, to start a page just for the sheer purpose of, of targeting people on other platforms because Facebook has the most advanced by far tools. So when you get into questions of, data and privacy and sharing and selling data and who owns data, the amount of data from around the globe that Facebook owns and knows and gathers and collects and traffics in is unheard of. Um, and like Mike was saying, this is, this is an unprecedented reach for the dissemination of information, but an unprecedented reach for the ability to target people with information behind the scenes as well. Information that you get from other platforms that Facebook enabled you to get through that platform. So there's a lot more going on here than just, you know, in 20 years, are people still going to be sharing things on Facebook? It won't matter um, because the whatever that platform evolves into in the coming decades um, will still be a significant part of our life, whether it looks like it does today or not. Grant, face plant in Australia, what question did I not ask? In all this conversation, we didn't really talk about sort of the other part of the law, which was about subsidizing uh, journalism and other media institutions. Um, One of the things that's been really interesting about the way Facebook has disrupted the journalism space is that it shows just how much the profit motive incentivizes different types of content. Back in the day when we only had three uh, channels, the incentive was to go towards the middle. And so we had three different news organizations that focused on the same middle of the road reporting. 
Now the incentive is on engagement, which often leads to increased radicalization and deeper and deeper partisanship. How do we think about the challenge of dealing with a democratized information space as it relates to creating a more unified American culture? Well, I'm not sure you're ever really going to get a unified American culture. <laughs> I don't. I don't think we've ever had one. I think it might be a bad idea to have a unified American culture. I think it's it's a good idea to have a unified concept or close to a unified concept around American civic education and the way we think of uh, our our political institutions and our political processes and that kind of thing. I think there's a utility in that, but I think beyond that. We should we should not try to smooth over bumps or get everyone to agree on everything. I mean, the the diversity of the country is something we should embrace, whatever kind of diversity it is, diversity of thought, diversity of background. Uh, and so the idea that you would the government would intentionally try to stamp out certain voices, I think, is uh, is really a bad idea. Uh, plus, you it's impossible to do anyway, right? People can just create a new platform uh, for their group if they want to. So the idea that you can kick, kick them off one and somehow not give them a voice, if anything, you're, you're going to, the persecution is going to make them uh, even more powerful. So, I mean, Grant, at the, at the center of your question is there's a piece of the sort of mo- the, the motive behind the law in Australia was to try to, at least part of it was to try to protect smaller publishers and smaller content producers, which is a huge problem in the United States as well, right? Smaller content producers and publishers being pushed out of business, being bought up by conglomerates and um, the, the sort of the loss of those diversity of voices in our democratic discourse over time. Um, it's not clear that you need to have a law like this to address that problem. Um, there are ways to get at, uh, the, there are ways to get at the um, loss of those smaller and independent media outlets that address the profit motive through whether it's um, in forms of encouraging private funding, whether it is forms of um, uh, public funding, whether it is um, other uh, ways of decreasing um, the uh, regulatory uh, burdens on some of the smaller media producers. There are all kinds of different strategies for trying to um, prop up those smaller producers. But at the end of the day, the reality is none of them get reach to the number of eyes necessary if they need to sustain their business through digital or online advertising. None of them can access the eyes and the clicks uh, and the views that they need without accessing the platforms that Facebook and Google and the next social media platforms will offer. And so the, the, the answer has to be a combination of you know, figuring out ways to avoid having all of these smaller outlets bought up into uh, one or two different conglomerates around the world, but also figuring out a way to have um, some type of system whereby the um, smaller entities that are producing content get fairly compensated for their services. I think there's a piece to this too that we don't necessarily want to lose sight of, not to go back and keep harping on the news core piece of it as well, but that's, you know, lobbying and public advocacy 101, you know, News Corp sees a way to to cash in and get Facebook to start paying it money for this insane amount of news stories that are being shared all over the world. You're never going to put your own face on that. You're never going to say this is what we're driving. You take the little guy, you take the small, you know, outlets, you take the the smaller journalistic outlets that are being driven out by big, bad Facebook and you make them the face of the thing you're doing. And when you're News Corps and you own them all, you can do that. So 
yeah, it looks like, you know, mom and pop newspaper down the streets getting hurt because Facebook's not paying them for stuff. Well, that may be true, but that is most definitely not the driving force behind this. It's what everyone likes to get onto and it's what you build your public affairs campaign around. But let's, you know, maybe that's a, a, a nice secondary outcome of this, but let's not pretend that this isn't, you know, one gigantic media conglomerate finding a way to get money out of another and pushing it through in Australia. Jamil. No, I mean, I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, I think that, you know, um, what you have here is a situation where both entities used uh, the place they have their power, right? Um, uh, News Corp had its power in the Australia legislature and, uh, and Facebook had its power, um, you know, online um, and with its followers and with its, uh, its users. And, um, and on this day, um, Facebook's, Facebook's users and followers uh, won. Um, and the, uh, the, the lobby in the Australian Parliament lost. Now, you know, the Australian Parliament's view is we're not just working for, for, uh, for News Corp. We're, we're working for a bunch of other publishers, as, as, as Mike laid out, and we're working for the Australian people. And so, uh, you know, look, this debate will continue to play out. Um, but I think at the end of the day, um, I go back to the lessons uh, that, that I take away from this, which is um, these things evolve fast. Um, technology is moving very quickly. Um, I think it is a it is a uh, mistake for legislatures to try to uh, manipulate the market um, in this space, even where uh, the manipulation you know seems like it may have a a surface uh, validity to it. The market is, I think, better place to figure this out. And it, look, where there's behavior that undermines the market, that's a different story. Um, and this, that's true for the market for for the economic goods themselves, but also uh, as as Grant was discussing the politics of it. Um, uh, both of these should be allowed to play out in their own way um, and not uh, and not be manipulated by those in office. All right, let's turn to the issue that each of us is following that's not necessarily in the front page headlines. Grant, could you please go first? Absolutely, less. Uh, so what I'm following this week is the latest action going on with the European Union. The foreign ministers of EU member states have agreed to impose sanctions on a number of bad actors across the globe. This includes sanctions on Myanmar's military following the coup earlier this year, on a number of Russian oligarchs in response to the jailing of Alexei Navalny, and on Venezuelan officials. They've also discussed increasing sanctions on Alexander Lukashenko or the last dictator of Europe. Supporters of human rights and democracy should cheer these moves as a unified front of Europe, the U.S., Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and other allies is much better than individualized sanctions. However, if Europe really wants to lead in the human rights space, it has to clean up its own house. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban continues to consolidate power and crack down on civil liberties. In December, he lowered the legal threshold for the government to declare a state of emergency and removed oversight when an emergency is declared. This is on top of the work he's already done to neuter the press, push out civil society, and reduce the rights of LGBTQ Hungarians. Sanctioning Venezuela from Brussels is easy. Actually, dealing with Hungary will show whether the EU really has a stomach to fight for human rights. Michael. I'm following an issue not too far away from some of what Grant was just talking about, which is the fallout from uh, the report of the UN Special Rapporteur, Elena Duhon, who visited Venezuela uh, for 12 days and thereafter concluded uh, that all of the United States sanctions regime in Venezuela was illegal and a violation of international law, and that the United States 
uh, and not the Maduro regime was largely responsible for uh, the suffering of the Venezuelan people and the denial of humanitarian aid and relief uh, to the people in Venezuela. And the fact that this was in many ways inconsistent with um, the uh, September 2020 report of the UN Human Rights Council is of interest to me. Uh, also of interest to me is to see how this plays out, particularly with uh, the Biden administration's uh, review of sanctions uh, with respect to Venezuela and its rejoining of the UN uh, Human Rights Council. Uh, so I'm uh, very interested in this story and how uh, the new administration, if at all, uh, will deal with uh, some of the pressure that uh, may come from it. Lauren. So not exactly a, a strict national security issue, but I'm all consumed and fascinated this week by, uh, by NASA, um, by the, the amazingly successful landing on Mars and just the stunning work and the effort that that took to get there uh, from the team and the photos and the videos that have come out, you know, just, just since you know, this week. Um, really excited to see what else goes on there. Awesome. All right. I am following uh, the civil war in Ethiopia, where we don't have a ton of information. Uh, they've, uh, Ethiopia has largely prevented reporters from getting in and telling the story. There have been uh, leaks of atrocities uh, committed in the Tigray region. And also this very interesting news item a couple days ago in the Tigrayan city of Aksum, where it is believed that the Ark of the Covenant uh, is being held, not in a warehouse in Suitland, Maryland, per the movie, uh, but in a uh, Orthodox Ethiopian church in Aksum, uh, that 800 people were killed when a rebel group uh, tried to get to the Ark of the Covenant. So uh, terrible things happening in Ethiopia, stuff we should care about. We need some sunlight on the situation. We need access for reporters. Uh, Ethiopia is a, a giant country of over 110 million people. A humanitarian crisis there could get really out of control. So um, uh, should be getting more play than it is. Uh, bring us home, Jamil. Uh, I'm following the arrest of El Chapo Guzman's wife at Dulles International Airport. A uh, lot of questions about uh, about this arrest, uh, what was she doing at Dulles? Um, you know, not not really sort of a smart idea for uh, the wife of a convicted drug lord to be flying through uh, the the U.S.'s capital, particularly given that he's in life uh, in prison for life here in the United States. Um, this is a woman, by the way, who um, is alleged to have uh, uh, helped fund his escape twice, or at least once, from Mexican prison in 2015, uh, where he got out through a uh, a hole in his shower and snuck out of a long a long tunnel. Um, uh, you know, other questions, uh, you know, who is confidential informant one who, uh, ratted out, uh, El Chapo Guzman and was the recipient of the hundred thousand dollars from, uh, El Chapo's wife to buy the property through which El Chapo escaped in 2015. Uh, there's not probably a lot of people on that list. So I think they probably know who he is. Hopefully he's well hidden. Uh, he or she, by the way, I note the, the uh, indictment doesn't indicate whether it's a male uh, man or woman. Um, and, uh, and also, Will will uh, uh, will she flip um, Ms. Coronel, uh, El Chapo's wife? She's three decades younger than El Chapo. He's in jail for life here in the U.S. He's never getting out um, unless he manages some amazing escape like he did in Mexico. Um, and uh, and if she does flip on him, what kind of hiding, you know, how does she, how well the hidden away does she have to be to escape the long arm of the Sinaloa cartel? Clearly, um, you can't escape the long arm of American law, as Mike Pondat pointed out earlier. It may have taken us uh, a long time, but we got Osama bin Laden hiding out in Abbottabad, Pakistan, and we got El Chapo um, and his wife. Um, and so it may take some time, but we get him. 
the question is, how worried is she about the ability of the Sinaloa cartel to do the same to her? All right, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Lester Munson for hosting. And also Grant Haver for being our producer and director. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. Mm-hmm.